For me, it, it's having the courage to to share your voice, share share what you think, uh, so so other people can can hear your ideas and hear what you care about. It's really simple that nature is the most valuable asset on the planet, bigger than equities, bigger than bonds, bigger than all the property in all the world. And we just need to reframe and think about it. And if we valued nature in the same way that we valued our, our house or we valued our, 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 our portfolio stocks and shares, we would treat it very differently. It used to take the piss out of me for being a geographer. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know how to use Excel. I definitely wasn't a finance guy. Uh, so yeah, the first two years were brutal. Today's guest is Robert Gardner. Rob is an entrepreneur and investor with a proven track record in sustainability within the pensions and wealth management industry. He's the co-founder of Reddington and Mallow Street, both B Corps and Red Star, a financial education charity. He's also served on the executive board of St. James's Place, where he managed over 150 billion pounds in client investments. He's currently the co-founder and co-CEO of Rebalance Earth, a startup company focused on enabling the flow of private capital to protect and restore nature. Rob believes the financial markets have the potential to be a force for good, and he's dedicated his career to making that a reality. In this episode, we dig into his backstory and explore how he's used the power of pitching and storytelling to make an impact for people and planet. If you enjoy what you hear, please like and subscribe. It will mean the world to me and will help this podcast reach as many people as possible. You don't want to miss this. Enjoy. Rob, welcome to the podcast. My first question for you, what's the most important thing you've ever had to pitch for? I think it's what I'm pitching for right now, which is to make nature the most valuable asset class on the planet. We face twin risks at the moment. I think most people will know about the issue of climate change, but the loss of nature, the loss of biodiversity is just as bad. Here in the UK, our rivers are trashed. It's not safe for us to swim in. It's not safe for our dogs to swim in. Uh, if we lost all of our bees, bees and insects in the UK, uh, it would cost us about £1.8 billion to hand pollinate uh, our crops. So. Wow. Yeah, we need to reverse nature loss fast. And, you know, and, and I'm setting up a new business, Rebalance Earth, whose job it is to make it really easy for pension funds, like the pension fund that you're invested in, uh, to invest in protecting and restoring nature at scale uh, and unlocking all of the amazing uh, what's called ecosystem services that nature provides, from the clean air to the clean water to soil quality to reducing flood risk to reducing. Uh, drought risk so that you know the impact has never been never been greater so yeah that's my biggest pitch it's a huge pitch I, I'd love to come back to that later because I'd love to dig into exactly how um, how you're doing that but be before we go there um, I know that you've had a lot of success in in your career and um, I'm, I'm really excited to dig into some of the things that you've been up to and um, everyone that I meet has one that got away. So for you, what's what's the pitch that got away? Yeah, good question. I mean, to to be fair, there've been many. They've never. I've not. I've never had a catastrophic pitch that that got away. Uh, one of the businesses I I founded is is Reddington, a, a, a pensions consultancy that wants to help make a hundred million people financially secure. And so we would pitch to big company pension schemes, think, think the Aviva or the HSBC or, or Unilever pension scheme. And we were at the time a young upstart company competing against the biggest and best known brands, the, you know, the IBMs and Microsofts of, of the industry. And uh, yeah, there were, I, w I won't say which companies, but you know, these were big <laughs> FTSE 100 company pension schemes. The, these were the sort of the ones you want to win, right? These, yeah. uh, and it's galling. It, it it's galling to 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 miss out on a on a pitch, and it, it's tough in business because actually you often know that you're going to do a good job, uh, and these kind of business requests for presentations followed by a pitch yeah. feels a little bit like Britain's Got Talent. In one hour, you have to condense your team, your That's purpose, fun. how you're going to work with them. Like if you were their advisor, what you've got one hour to do all of that right. Typically, it's not just a single person pitching. You're pitching as a team of two or three individuals. 
and you're presenting to a room, a board of trustees. So you've got to get the energy right. You've got to get the clarity right. You've got to get the tempo right. You've got to have a mixture of think, a mixture of feel and a mixture of know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I get nightmares thinking about some of those pitches, if I'm honest. I mean, how how have you learned to kind of bounce back from those things? Because you're 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 so right. Whatever industry you're in, that that always happens. You think, oh, this is the perfect fit. This is that. There's no question that we are the right people to do this job. And all of a sudden, people go in a different direction. So how how have you kind of built your resilience around those sorts of situations? Well, I mean, to begin with, obviously you cry. I mean, that's the, you know, I mean, not literally, but inside you, you, you cry or you go for a beer or uh, you have a moan. Uh, I think that's cathartic. I think that's important. Uh, I, I'm a big believer now, not just in post-mortems, but pre-mortems. And really, yeah. I think the pre-mortems allows you to get better at doing this and really identifying where you got wrong. Uh, I'm a huge advocate of radical candor, calling them up and getting the feedback and the initial feedback will be, oh, you know, you came second Surface. and you have to push and say, okay, I know, but, you know, tell me, you know, where did we fall down? Because actually this can help us get better next time. Yeah. Um, so really pushing for that feedback uh, is, is hard and it has to be done on a phone call. It can't or face to face. It can't be done over an email because email, people yeah. never give you, give you that that candid feedback. And I think just on resilience more generally, uh, I, I happen, you know, one of my passions outside of work is is tennis, both to play, uh, you know, just something fun to do, but I, I love to watch tennis. But I think tennis is a great metaphor for, for life. And let me explain why, because you have points, 15 love, 30 love, 40, 15, and then a game. And you can win or lose a point, and then you come back a game. You can win or lose a game, but you can come back and win the set. You then have to, let's think, and I'm now talking about Grandmaster Tennis, uh, Grand Slam Tennis, you know, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer. You've then got to win the set. You've then got to win three sets. Then you've got to get all the way through to the final. You might lose the final, uh, you know, think, you know, think about, you know, maybe uh, Djokovic earlier in the in the year when, uh, when, when he lost out. And so, but life is like, we used to get back. There's still another Grand Slam I can come yeah. back to. There's still another year. Obviously, in tennis, that's not quite true because you do have to retire at some point. But I, I just think this idea that life is made up of points within a game. You've got games within a set. You've got sets within a match. You've got a series of match within a tournament. And then there's another tournament. And I think success in business is about consistency over time. And you just have to accept the brutal... There will be times when you just lose and it feels unfair. And, you know, that in a way, that's why we like watching sport, right? It's the drama of sport yeah. uh, that we love. And and I think business is the same. I love that. I love that. Um, now, as we've kind of alluded to, you, you're, and I'm sure you wouldn't put it in this terms, but you're, you're a pretty big name within the pensions industry in the UK. You were the co-founder of uh, Reddington. Um, you're a board member and director of investment at St. James's Place. Um, you founded the charity Red Star. You've written two books. You've written a TEDx. Like, take me back to the beginning. Um, when you were a kid growing up, like, did you want to be in finance? Was that the the dream? How how did this start? No, I mean, my my parents were both teachers, and you know, we I was born in Holland. We lived in Argentina. They taught all over the world, uh, including in the UK. And I have to say, I I, I suffered from the fact that uh, I was a teacher's son, and some of the schools we taught in, especially in the UK, I was made to feel like a bit of a second-class citizen so I, I definitely suffered from having sort of a gremlin on my shoulder that of like you're not good enough I, I didn't know about finance or pensions uh even even when I went to university because I'd grown up traveling all over the world I thought I either wanted to join the foreign office uh that that's something that really really appealed to me or the kind of big global jobs uh, you know, that HSBC or Standard Chartered have that, you know, for me, it was kind of going around the world. And that's what I thought about banking. I didn't know about the world of investment banking, which is where yeah. I started. I started at Deutsche Bank. So, you know, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, I'd never heard of those until I went to university. 
and, and and then obviously when I started at Deutsche Bank, you know, I never really thought I'd go and become a, a, a sort of pensions consultant. So at no point have I have I had these things in mind. My, my main driver when I left uni was to have a job that would enable me to sort of travel, do interesting work. And if I'm really honest, earn lots of money. I, I was highly motivated to uh, escape what in my mind was, you know, my parents had a good job, had amazing holidays. They had school holidays, but they didn't earn much. Uh, and I could see the other kids at the school that I would go to because they were often private schools. Yeah. And I was motivated at the beginning by, hey, I want, you know, I want to earn money. I want a bit of that. But you you didn't study something related to finance. You went to Oxford, right? And you, you studied glaciology. So <laughs> how, did, how does that happen? <laughs> well, I studied geography, okay. of which I specialized in glaciology and hydrology. And I think that goes back to one of my mantras, which is do the stuff that you love. I was very lucky uh, that I had a geography teacher who at A-level convinced me to drop chemistry to do geography so I was going to do mass physics chemistry both my parents did mass physics chemistry and I was probably going to go to uni and do maths or physics and really just follow in my parents footsteps and yeah. but I love to you know I traveled all over the world I mean I think I've been to like over 60 countries now but at age 18 I'd been to over 30 countries I was fluent in Spanish I'd been to glaciers uh like Perito Moreno in uh in in, in Chile uh seen the Iguazu Falls so I've always had a sort of tangible passion for, for 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 geography, and and so I had these two amazing geography teachers, uh, Mr. Clements and, and Mrs. Lawrence, who kind of convinced me to a do a level geography, and they then convinced me to study geography, and I think that's what's good about the UK system. And they were just very clear, say, look, Rob, study what you love, and that, yeah. I think that was one of the best bits of advice. Now, let's be honest, when I was interviewing at Deutsche Bank and Merrill Lynch, they were all like, you study geography. Why are you working here? Are and I was <laughs> the first few years I was at, uh, at Deutsche Bank, I used to get, you know, they used to take the piss out of me for being a geographer. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know how to use Excel. I definitely wasn't a finance guy. Uh, so, yeah, the first two years were brutal. Now, what's amazing is that 25 years later, now that I'm, you know, starting my new business, Rebalance Earth, uh, those geography skills absolutely really really come to the fore when combined with my knowledge of finance yeah. and how that works it's amazing how these things come full circle i i i had a very similar experience to you in in terms of that teacher mine was liz manning she was the drama teacher and i was going to go down the business route i was a really kind of high performing student i was thinking you know business or economics at oxford that sort of thing and she went you should you should do this you will love this and i will always thank her for that opportunity i mean it's been a kind of weird and wonderful road to where i am now but i'm now still using those skills just in a completely different context so yeah um we'll uh, we'll, we'll complete the circle a little bit later on um so you you were at uh deutsche bank um then then merrill lynch and then in 20 uh, 2006 you decided to break away and and found reddington um, what was the what was the catalyst for that? You you were very young to be making that sort of leap. So how was it received? How did you do it? Well, yeah, I was twenty seven. I'd just been promoted. Uh, how was it received? I think everyone, apart from my wife and then girlfriend uh, and my business partner Dawid, who we were going to set up together with, all thought I was mad. I'd, <laughs> I'd. Uh, I yeah I'd just been promoted and was the youngest director at Merrill Lynch. I I'd, I'd I'd done really well the year before. Uh, you know why on earth would you leave a you know a really good job at Merrill Lynch uh, with all the kind of benefits and perks with which go with that to go and start a pensions consultancy business, age twenty seven. You know just the word pensions at a barbecue would make people's eyes roll, right? So. Uh, yeah, how was it received? Uh, was you know you're you know you're crazy, and then how on earth are you and Howard going to take on uh, the big brands at the time? Yeah. You know Watson Wire, Mercer, uh, Aon Hewitt. You know there were these big sort of global brands, and you know these two <laughs> young well these two people from Merrill Lynch were going. 
going to take on those guys. But, you know, we had been working on this pensions problem as outsiders from sort of 2003. That's why I left Deutsche to, to join Dawid. And actually, when we set up Reddington, we wrote in our business plan, we wanted to do to pensions what Jamie Oliver had done to school food. He literally changed the game, changed the way schools thought about. He he showed that schools could give healthy food to kids within a tight school budget. And it was obvious to Dowd and I that the, the sort of the final salary pension scheme, as was, wasn't sustainable and different thinking was needed. We were doing that from within an investment bank. Uh, and we pioneered a way of managing risk, but it was easy to shoot us down and say we, we were conflicted, uh, that we were just giving this advice because we were trying to do these long dated derivative transactions with pension funds. And so we thought, well, look, why don't we, because we'd often then have the pitch to these consultants and convince them that this was the right thing for the pension scheme. And so we thought, well, why actually, why don't we go and help unlock the problem? Why don't we be become those uh, company advisors, those pension scheme advisors ourselves? So in, in those early days, what, what did the business look like? Was it you and Dowd in a rented office somewhere? Like how, how did you punch above your weight in what is a very kind of, you know, traditional industry, I suppose? We, we used to work out of Dowd's uh, attic up in, well, in North, and we used to work out of my spare bedroom in Islington. Uh, I remember, you know, my bed in 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 the flat there wasn't enough room for a desk and a chair on my bed so basically i used to sit on my bed and then on the desk there was no space for a chair <laughs> and we'd often be working on a powerpoint at two three four in the morning we'd be skyping each other backwards and forwards during the middle of the night uh, and then kinko print has this sort of 24 7 service and we'd like send it to the kinko print and then go and pick it up at like 8 a.m. and then go to the kind of client meeting with with the pitch it was still warm like the bake-off it was it, it uh, as we were walking into the into the meeting so uh, you, you know you've 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 had dan Priestley on the show and 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 actually I've, I've been part of dan's program course but he talks about hustle muscle and and you know i love it we were just it's a pure hustle muscle i there's this saying which I love, which is people only care about what uh, what you think uh, when they know you care. And mm -hmm. it was crystal clear, anyone who met Dawid and me, that we really cared. We really wanted to make a difference. And actually, I think people look and go, you know, chapeau, you both quit well-paid jobs to go all in on this problem. You know, you, you're, you know, having skin in the game, uh, even if people never verbally acknowledge it, I think as, at a... At a subconscious level, people recognize that you've quit the safety of a job, mm -hmm. go all in, uh, and you're doing it authentically with purpose. So how did you grow things? What were the, who were the first hires within the business? What roles were you looking to fill? Well, we, uh, we were very lucky. We, uh, our first client was the, the Royal Mail, uh, and I'm forever grateful to Frank Chanella, the, the finance director there at the time, who who hired us and uh, and also the sort of pensions manager, Dinesh Rizavadia, who, who, you know, I'm still in contact with today. He's now a, an independent trustee. But I, I think it's extremely risky for, you know, someone like Frank to hire a Reddington when he could have hired, a, you know, one of the the other the other firms. We, we were, you know, when we set up Reddington was before venture capital and fundraising, that business was customer funded. So we won a clan and we <laughs> used that money and we recycled it. I mean, Dowd and I didn't pay ourselves for two and a half years. Uh, and we we hired and, and built out a team. In the in the beginning, there was sort of Stuart Dillon, our our, our CTO, and there was uh, Angela, uh, who was our kind of COO. And then over time, we needed to to sort of hire different you know different people, people who could run our asset liability models, people who could help us with PowerPoint, uh, and then and then build and grow. And and slowly, we win one more client. And then we'd 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 hire more people, uh, and then and then the global financial crisis happened two thousand eight two thousand and nine, uh, and you know it was weird. Like two thousand seven, the world was shiny. You know the world was sunny. It all felt great, and then very quickly overnight, you know the clouds came in and and the global financial crisis, which was which was brutal. And I have to say, you know when you've got people when you when you're running a business and employing people. 
and you know that you have to pay them and you're not sure you in your gut you're not sure that you have enough money to pay them at the end of the year but these people have lives you know mortgages it, that that is deeply stressful there was this tool we called it revenue tracker where we'd map out all of our known revenues our pipeline and then our costs and then over the, the first three months the revenues would be better than the costs yeah and then after that the visibility the on the forward rate. sales would go like that yeah so we used to call it the wall of death and i would just see and the goal was just always to keep moving the wall of Move death the wall. uh uh yeah so that was that that was pretty frightening so how how did you weather that storm and and kind of you know, come come out the other side to to build what is now a you know highly respected business within the industry? Um, what what were the kind of key steps that you took on that journey? Well, in a way, the global financial crisis was a sort of double edged sword because uh, people got into real trouble, and uh, Dowd and I and Reddington, I suppose, had a unique set of skills and uh in that we were ex-investment bankers we understood capital markets and so although it was challenging there was also a a, a more acute problem that we could solve better than our competitors so yeah. in a way that crisis created opportunity I mean, I mean dad and i didn't yeah we didn't pay ourselves for sort of two and a half years uh so we hadn't paid ourselves anyway and, and we just carried on uh on through and yeah there's a bit of you just put your head down and you and you keep going as i say we were lucky we won some good early clients where we helped them and, and made a massive difference uh but then actually the game changer was probably uh i was trying to think maybe it was 2012 because we got to a size and and then we kind of struggled to to grow we were this kind of like nice boutique business of sort of 10 or 11 people and it's that old adage that you have to kind of go from working in your business to working on your business and mm -hmm. you know i think dad and i were very good at working in our business seeing clients pitching trying to convince them why they should appoint us why we were better placed to solve their problem uh why we were a better firm and and or trying to recruit people but I, I actually I remember because it was my birthday. It was the uh, it was October 2012. I I went on one of these sort of Dan Priestley courses campaigns, and and he was on you know one of your earlier podcasts. So he'd run these big campaigns. You'd go and take a day. So that that was that happened to be my birthday, and he and he's on stage and he's pitching the five the, the what he, his kind of key person of influence and the, and the five P's. Uh, and it was on a Saturday and I remember coming back from that and thinking, I need to do this. And I, I told Dawid and I told our, our COO, Jonathan, and they were like, but Rob, how are you going to have time to do this course? And I'm like, yeah. like, I just think if we don't, if I don't make time to do this, we're just going to, we're just going to head a brick, a brick wall. And then out of that, that post that there was definitely a big step change as really started thinking about training other people in the business to pitch, training other people to sort of publish and write blogs, uh, thinking about how we uh, build what Daniel calls this ascending transaction model of sort of content to put out there, your your product for prospect. We created a Reddington health check, what our, our, our core proposition was. And, and actually, once we started to put those things in place, between sort of 2013 and 2016, the flywheel got going and Reddington to really had a second growth phase. And we won some really, you know, blue chip client or a lot more blue chip clients. And I think that really put us on the map that we weren't just a sort of flash in the pan and had just convinced a handful of clients, uh, but that we were able to win these really big pension schemes away from the big, the big consultants and, and that we had a better, you know, we had a better mousetrap uh, to, to help solve their problems so how did how did your kind of pitching skills develop over that time because you know i'm, I'm imagining and correct me if i'm wrong that you know that there wasn't a huge focus on on pitching in a, a geography degree at oxford so like you you've you've landed job then you go i'm going to do this on my own you i love the idea that you kind of you, you're the pensions equivalent of jamie oliver but then how how did you develop and grow that um and and as you say train other people to uh be able to take it on and share it with the world so if you know 
I'm very lucky because I, you know, I was hired by Dawid, Dawid Kanotiahulu at Merrill Lynch, and he is a master of presentations, of public speaking. He has an incredible voice. If I'd really encourage uh, listeners to just just look up his name, Dawid Kanotiahulu, on Spotify or, or on, on 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 YouTube. Different from the way that that that, that I was. So very much a kind of classically trained public speaker in the in the kind of Greek sense that you need to yeah. kind of have logic, you need to have sort of passion, you need to have uh, you need to have emotion. But he he's a barrister by training, so no ums, no ahs. He's he's got this deep gravelly voice. Think James Earl Jones. So he's just a pleasure <laughs> to listen to. And at Merrill Lynch, we were trying to shift people's mindset and saying there is a different way of thinking about your pension. And before blogging, he used to write this sort of Red Alpha newsletter and he'd tell these analogies. We'd constantly be working on our PowerPoint pitch, but we'd kind of interweave it with uh, with stories. Uh, and, and one of the best analogies that he would use uh, was uh, Only Fools and Horses, uh, the TV show. Yeah. I don't know if you remember the episode, but they're doing some DIY and there's some chandeliers and they need to take down the chandelier. And they're both underneath with the tarpaulin under the, 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 under the roof, under the chandelier, and they're looking up. And I think it's uh, Uncle Albert is upstairs and sort of undoing it and, and tapping it. It's like, come on, what's happening? What's happening? And then suddenly, you know, he taps it and it falls and it crashes. And then obviously it zooms out and there was another chandelier and <laughs> they lined it up. And and the reason we would share that, it would, you know, it's it's a genius uh, comedy sketch moment. But the analogy we were trying to make was that up until that moment, pension fund trustees, their advisors had all been focused on the assets and hadn't been thinking about the liabilities. The liabilities were going up and up and up and up and up. Uh, and if you weren't careful, if you kept your eye off it, eventually, you know, those liabilities would, would cause uh, a big problem for you. So that that metaphor then allowed us to explain why you didn't need to you needed to move beyond assets to asset and liability management. The early tagline for Reddington was the destination uh, for asset and liability management. So my so what is that Dawid uh, was always superb on the stage. Uh, was good at putting out content in a pre sort of Twitter blogging world. And I would just watch and listen and develop my own version. I, I don't, you know, we're very different, mm -hmm. but I think one of the most important things is passion. Uh, yeah. I think I'm a very passionate speaker and I think I always had that and I've always been authentic. So I'm good at selling what I care about. If you ask me to sell something Take football. I don't watch football. I don't follow football apart from Wrexham now, but that's for different reasons. <laughs> I I couldn't because it wouldn't be authentic. It's not something yeah. I'm 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 passionate about. Uh, just as a digression, when I was at Deutsche Bank, I moved roles and I was covering the UK Bundesartis, and this sales guy handed over to me and said, "Look, I've here's an Excel sheet with all of your clients, and it's hooked up to this tool called Bloomberg." And I've got what football team they support and it pulls in all of their scores. So when you call them up, you can say, hey, Dominic, da, 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 and talk about the game. And I was like, I'm not going to no. do that. Yeah. I don't care about football. I'm not going to pretend to care about something. So I suppose I had some intuition that I that I didn't uh, that I didn't have. I happened to work with Dawid, who was incredible. And then the next stage. So we were naturally pitching. So when I heard Daniel talk about his five P's, I was like, we're actually doing this. But all of a sudden, Daniel gave a structure and a kind of why it worked, which meant I could double down. Mm -hmm. And then I joined. And at the time, his sort of pitch coach was a guy called Mike Harris, who founded, uh, he literally convinced HSBC to set up First Direct, the first telephone bank. He convinced Prudential to give him money to set up Egg. And actually, as a result of doing that course, I then went on to do Mike Harris's iconic shift course, uh, where he doubles down on mastering the pitch. So between 2012 and 2014, between Daniel and 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 Mike really understood the importance of pitching and 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 thinking about structuring it and investing the time uh, in getting that right, practicing it myself. 
and finessing it and not following it exactly right because i think you need to yeah. take these tools and make them work for you Absolutely, yeah but then the game changer was starting to try and teach people at Reddington these skills as well, because obviously that's where the operational leverage comes as you grow. Mm -hmm. So you talked about passion there quite a lot. And, and one of the things that you are passionate about is financial education. So you, you set up Red Star as a charity whilst you were at Reddington. Um, what you mentioned growing up that you know you saw other people that didn't have uh, or had more than you what was that part of the catalyst for for thinking about that or was it was it something different it was it's probably a, a mixture of things so in addition to not having as much as some of the other kids when we lived in argentina inflation was sky high it was you know 30% a month prices changed every day and so I was acutely aware of how hard my parents had to work just to keep hold of what they earned. You know, yeah. we would change the money up. Uh, at the age of seven, I knew the exchange rate of the US dollar to every currency in South America. Uh, when I went to university, you know, I used to budget and save. And then suddenly I met all these people who were just like clueless about money. I thought everyone knew this. Uh, and, you know, and I was earning and I was, you know, earning money at uni to kind of pay for my nights out and, and, and pay for my holidays. So I always had that sort of, hey, I, I seem to know, have a good understanding of the basics of money. And it's not something that is, is generally well understood. At Runnington, it was really three drivers. One was in 2012 was the end of these final salary pension funds called defined benefits and, and moved to what's called defined contribution. And the danger with that is that to many people, they don't really know the difference. And so the, you might think, oh, I've got a pension and my mum or dad or my granddad had a pension and that was really good. The two are not the not same. The same. It will have yeah. very different outcomes. And I was like, hmm, this feels unfair. And the problem with defined contribution is all the onus and responsibility is on you. So the shift in responsibility from your company or the government looking after you in old age financially to you having to do it, you know, no one really got the memo. And just, guess, to, just to clarify for people listening, a, a final uh, a final salary pension scheme means that you get a percentage of your final salary when you retire, whereas the defined benefit means that you are putting in a certain amount a month and building up a pot, but then you draw down on that pot and what's in the pot is what you get back. Yeah, simply. Yeah, so you just get it's defined contribution is the second one. So the yeah. only thing that's defined is how much you put, you in. put in. Exactly. But, but often the amount that you're putting in might only be 8% and it needs to be more like 15 to 20%. Yeah. You then are responsible for how that money is invested. invested. Yeah. And then on top of that, when you retire and you have that pot of money, you've got to make that last. And if you were Captain Tom and you retired at 65, he had to make his pot of money last 35 years. Yeah. It is an incredibly complicated challenge. When you're in a defined benefit, that responsibility sits with the company on behalf of all the people who ever worked for it. And we were advising those companies. And by the way, it's incredibly complicated for them to do it and, and hard, which is why they said, well, we don't want to keep doing this. We'll hand this over to the individual yeah. at a time when individuals don't understand money and how it works. So that was motivation. Number one, motivation. Number two was back then this thing called CSR and CSR has evolved, but corporate social responsibility was important. And quite often you would fill out a request for presentation and they'd say, well, what CSR do you do? And I, I just didn't want to do something that wasn't connected to our business. I wanted to do something that was, and I, and I didn't want to go and like just paint fences or do, do something cliche. And, and I was like, well, actually I wanted to do something connected with our business. So what if we could go and teach people, kids about money, because it's really important. And actually there was a secondary benefit. If you can teach kids about money and you can engage them, it also helps with your pitching skills. So actually there was a double whammy. Yeah, the hardest audience uh, you'll ever face. They're going to like heckle you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it forces you, it forces clarity. It forces you to be engaging. Uh, and the third reason was, I think quite often entrepreneurs have this narrative that I'll work really, really, really hard and then I'll be really successful and then I'll give back. Right. I just don't buy into that narrative. I think, you know, giving back isn't about giving money. It's about giving what you know, who you know who you know bringing all the skills that you have all the capital that you have which isn't just financial capital it's social capital it's intellectual capital and so i've been a big believer in giving back in whatever way for as long as possible 
And so for me, Red Star, which is now, as I say, was founded in 2012, uh, it, for me personally, is giving back with impact. And it's something that's incredibly important for me. And, you know, Red Start now is one of the largest financial education charities in the UK. We're working with over 35 schools, some of the poorest, and we're doing the world's first longitudinal study to evidence that financial education can work at primary school. So we're working from kids aged five through to kids aged 11. Uh, we're working with King's College Policy Institute to do this longitudinal study. And we've had our first year of results back. And already we're seeing the impact, not just on the kids, but on the parents. And by the way, these are with some of the poorest schools in the UK. And I, and, and our goal is, you know, hopefully by 2030, when we convince the Department of Education to do this, we'll wrap up the charity because we will have changed the game. And to put that in context, there were 4.7 million kids at primary school. So just imagine if we can equip them with those life skills, help them avoid getting into a life of indebtedness and help them feel more confident about making decisions about money, which have a byproduct because actually often people have mental health issues to do with the fact that they feel ill-equipped. So uh, I am, you know, the thing I am proudest of is is Red Start and the impact that we've had already. We've probably reached over 45,000 kids, but the impact that we will have, you know, in the next decade is is just incredible. I think that idea of capturing people young is is so important. I mean, so you your your first book, Save Your Acorns, is a is a children's book, and and I've read that to my daughter. There you go, uh, and uh, you know she's she's nine now. Uh, I, I think I started reading to her a couple of, couple of years ago, and uh, she she really loved the story. But then you can start to have interesting conversations about what do you do with your pocket money. Um, when when we give it to you, and should we have some extra piggy banks, not just the one that you go in and then take it out and spend it from? Um, so it's it's great to be able to kind of capture that. What was was having your own family a kind of a, a catalyst for writing the book? Yeah, so uh, you know, one of the second P is publish uh, in in Dan's framework. So it's this idea about authority. I've written a book which I've never published back in 2012. Uh, but it was, yeah, when, I, when my first board daughter was born, uh, you know what it's like. You've got, you know, the sleep regime. Uh, I think I was reading a lot of Miffy, uh, which was just, and and a lot of Peppa Pig. Uh, you know, some people love Peppa Pig. It didn't it didn't work for me. I mean, my, my both my girls uh, loved it. But I thought, actually, why don't I write a book? And I went out and I thought, what is the best children's book out there? And it's The Gruffalo. So the word, the page count and the word count of this book is almost identical to the Gruffalo. So the first thing I did is I studied, well, what are all the kid, what are all the kids books that are the most popular uh, for, for that age group for four yeah. to six, that was my target audience. Uh, and yeah, I think it took me 17 drafts. It's only 850 words, but, Maybe. but then actually the, the magic of the book is the illustrations and bringing it together and, and and actually my, my my real the real audience isn't the kids it's the parents and it's the grandparents and uh that book's now been translated into spanish uh into cantonese i think i've sold about 5000 copies but i've given over 10000 copies and we're about to give 3000 copies of the book to the primary schools that we're working with as part of uh as part of red star amazing is is freedom and a natural kind of follow on to the adult readers of that book? So if I'm reading if I'm reading Acorns to my kids, then I can pick up freedom and and that's going to give me the kind of framework that sits behind it. Yeah. So for context, this is my second book, which I I published uh, this year in 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 2023. It was actually a lockdown project. You know, if you remember back to 2020, everyone was baking bread or learning to play a musical instrument, and I thought, okay, now is the time to 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 write that book and so one of the principles of save your acorns was can i teach kids about earning money collecting acorns keeping money they keep two out of ten and growing money they plant the acorns and they grow into trees but actually freedom is the key to financial freedom is how to earn it how to keep it and how to grow it uh, and it's really stories uh of my life whether it's in argentina collecting coca-cola bottles it's stories real life anecdotes of people who I've worked with who paid off their debt and bought a house or 
who who during lockdown got a pay rise and topped up their pension or or stories of of, of famous people uh you know like michael jordan uh or shaquille o'neal who when he got paid his first million dollar paycheck literally spent it in one day he went to the mercedes garage bought himself a new car came back his dad said hey dude where's my car so he went back and bought another car and then when he got back his mum was like well that's great, but where's my car? And he went back. So he bought three Mercedes in, in less than 24 hours, bought a couple of new suits, bought some jewelry, and had spent a million dollars. What he forgot is that he'd been paid that million dollars pre-tax. Tax, yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and so he was very lucky because his accountant uh, basically gave him some radical candor and got him to take out a $100 bill, and he ripped it in half. And then he ripped it in half again, and he said, this bit spend, this bit use for this, and this bit keep now unfortunately many basketball players many nfl players just don't get that advice and end up they literally end up bankrupt once they stop earning uh, earning money and so what i wanted to do was break this sort of idea that the more you earn that that the key to financial freedom was about earning more money yeah it's about mastering the combination of earn it keep it uh and uh, and grow it and it and it's and it's told through through stories and and actually you know someone just literally said oh actually i gave it to my 15 year old nephew and he loved it i wasn't even written for 15 year olds my target audience is sort of young professionals aged let's say 18 to 45 yeah. earning between 30k and 150k so it's not aimed at the 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 big earners the wealthy it's aimed at a young professional who's working at, you know in a law firm and accountancy he's got a good job but is suddenly going to get faced with a mortgage or what about my workplace pension? What about ISIS? Uh, what should I do with it? And and actually, again, I've given 500 copies of this to all of the teachers at all the schools that we work. And Brilliant. it's actually the younger teachers. It's the sort of 25 and under teachers who've come back and have been like, oh, wow, this is brilliant. I didn't know. I've started putting five pound, a, uh, you know, I've started putting five pound a week into my pension. And you just have to start slowly, slowly. I'm I'm always kind of inspired by by the stories that you hear of you know people that are basically financially free by the by the time that they're 28 because since they did their paper round they were just putting that money aside and living really frugally and then all of a sudden they they, they find that they've got you know a pot with a million quid in it and that <laughs> they can live off the interest it's uh, yeah it's a completely different way of looking at at cash and I don't I don't think we are taught that in our schools and yet and and it's wonderful that you you're going out there and, and making that happen um people and planet have been a big kind of theme of this conversation and they seem to be kind of at the heart of everything that you do um you mentioned rebalance earth right at the right at the beginning so let's let's go back there now um you uh you you step back from Reddington you went into uh, St James's place and and now you've decided which is kind of entre entrepreneurial madness maybe to to do it all again uh, and st and start from the beginning so um what what have you done differently this time having had those previous experiences well I th it's not that I've done differently it's just that I've been able to now do the stuff that probably took me six or seven years to learn so if you think about it, i set up reddington in 2006 and then i didn't do daniel's course until uh you know 2012 i then did mike harris's course i, I also worked with another uh person nick rickson sherlaws and I, I i suppose it's you fast forward and then now all of a sudden you've just got a bank of frameworks and tools that, that you can use and 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 you can and you can deploy. I, I think it's interesting because again, uh just this week someone referred to a talk I gave a year ago where I'm on stage and it's on YouTube and there's a link on our website. It is the power of that pitch and it's the power of putting it on YouTube that even a year later someone was just sort of like Googling me and said, I saw you give that talk where you talk about the elephants and uh and you're talking about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And that's the power. And I think, you know, what I've been doing is pitching, 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 pitching. 
but getting feedback, you know, if I'm honest, when I, you know, when I quit my job last year, I just knew there was a huge problem. I didn't know what the solution is. So I've been very much in sort of product market fix, fit, sorry. And so you do have to do, you know, pitch, 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 you know, 40, 50 times a week mm -hmm. for the last, you know, this year. So for over 40 weeks and the whole time you're finessing what works, what language, the sequence, what part of it doesn't work. How do I vary it depending on whether I'm talking to a pension fund or whether I'm talking to a company that might buy that sort of offset agreement or whether I'm talking to a charity like the National Trust or RSPB or I'm talking to a government organization like like DEFRA. So understanding that uh, is 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 key. But yeah, now now I get the opportunity to apply everything that I've learned over the last 17 years in one go. So I'm, I'm going to put you on the uh, on the spot here, but given that our our listeners are not necessarily from the the world of pensions and investment, what what is the pitch? What is Rebalance Earth setting out to do in the world? So, you know, our purpose is to create a world worth living in because our view is that if we carry on as we are, we won't have a world worth living in. So that's point one. How are we going to do that? We're going to enable the flow of private capital so that's really money from pension funds but also from money from companies to protect and restore nature at scale the problem is is since 1970 we've seen the population go from three and a half billion to eight billion we've seen gdp grow three and a half times four times so maybe 20 trillion to 100 trillion we've seen global market capitalization of equities grow a hundredfold. So let's pat ourselves on the back. Population growth, economic growth, growth in wealth. But we have done this at the very expense of nature. We have depleted all of our resources. In that same time period, we have lost 70% of our wildlife, our flora and fauna. The glacier that I studied on 25 years ago, Findelen Glacier in Switzerland, has all but disappeared. And you go, oh, well, it's a shame we've lost the glacier, but it costs pounds and pence because in Switzerland, they generate their money from uh, hydroelectric power. Grand Exons, which is the electricity supp supplier, has now lost 60% of its capacity to generate electricity. Here in the UK right now, with the storms that's happening, because we've changed the way our rivers function, we can't store water in our catchment areas. In Scotland, water is pouring over the top of our HEP stations. We are literally just throwing away five pound notes because it doesn't work. We get billions of pounds worth of flood damage because we've changed the way that we look after our rivers. And by the way, you know, we need fish to live off. We need bees to pollinate our, our, our plants. And so our, our idea is simple. This isn't Greta Thunberg. Uh, this is we need to rebalance things. We believe that we can maintain, probably not at the same rate, but population growth. Uh, the economy has to keep growing because I don't think people will sign up to, to degrowth. For that to happen, three things need to happen. We need to protect our land and oceans. Luckily, the politicians around the world are doing this. We've got a high seas treaty. That just halts the damage that we're doing. The second thing is on the remaining 70% of the planet, we need to reduce the footprint the negative footprint that all of us have on planet Earth. And so that means a rapid transition to a circular economy. So that means hopefully everything that we buy in the future is made from reused and recycled materials. Uh, you know, firms like Patagonia and Apple are on this journey, but everything we need to do needs to go on this. We need to stop single use plastics. By the way, when we go on this journey, it isn't necessarily bad for the profitability of our businesses. And the final thing we need to do is we need to restore nature. I'm not talking about rewilding. I'm talking about like getting nature back to where it is. And it turns out that if we were to pay for the ecosystem services that nature provides us, drought prevention, flood prevention, clean air, clean water, healthy soils, we should be paying nature $140 trillion a year. So about one and a half times global GDP. And our idea is really simple, that nature is the most valuable asset on the planet, bigger than equities, bigger than bonds, bigger than all the property in all the world. And we just need to reframe and think about it. And if we valued nature in the same way that we valued our, our house 
or we valued our, 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 our portfolio stocks and shares, we would treat it very differently. We certainly wouldn't be destroying it and taking for granted. And actually, we'd understand that for the last three and a half billion years, we've been on this freemium model of nature as a service. And now we need to start paying for nature as a service uh, to do that. And our goal at Rebalance Earth is to do that. And guess what? The amazing thing is that when we do that, we're going to create new jobs for people. We're going to improve people's health and well-being because it actually, at the end of the day, it begins and ends with people. And so I'm super excited about the opportunity to, to rebalance the way we work as people, uh, as economy uh, and as planet. And actually, for me, success is showcasing that it can be done. It doesn't just have to be a conceptual idea. We can take our rivers, we can re-riggle them, we can restore it, we can reduce drought risk, we can reduce flood risk, we can get insects back, we can get salmon back, we can get trout back, we can get birds back, we we improve the health of our, our soils and we have wonderful places to go and walk our dogs and spend time mm. with our families and our dogs can now swim in the sea and not not get sick. In fact, we can swim in the, the rivers and, and not get sick. Who Who doesn't want a world worth living in? Sounds absolutely brilliant. And I, I wish you a huge amount of success with that. I'm looking forward to following that journey. Um, Rob, I, I, I could chat all day, but I'm, I'm going to bring things to a close. And my, my final question for you is, if you could go back and give that young man in Argentina one piece of advice, what would that be? You know what? I, I wouldn't. I was the experience was amazing. I think, you know, if one of the things is be curious and growing up in Argentina, you know, thanks to my parents, we've got to travel all over. Is that curiosity? It, it also meant that we we got to see some of the, the richest people in South America, but also, you know, the 99 percent extremely poor. Uh, and I think that's extremely, extremely grounding. Uh, I think if I was to maybe advise myself a little bit older, if I may, uh, I think it's take risks, uh, you, you know, put your neck out there, get, stand up on stage. One of one of the songs I listen to to kind of get me in the mood before a big on stage uh, pitch is Read All About It by Emily Sandy. Uh, <laughs> and I know it's probably a bit cheesy and a bit cliche, but I'll, I'll, uh, uh, for me, it's having the courage to to share your voice, share share what you think, uh, so so other people can can hear your ideas and hear what you care about. Brilliant, Rob. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Why Life's a Pitch podcast. If you'd like to improve the way you pitch and communicate, I'm giving away a special gift to all my listeners. We've developed the Pitching with Impact Scorecard to help you benchmark your pitch performance in six key areas. It will take you less than five minutes to complete and you'll receive a detailed personalized report packed full of insights and ideas to help you improve and grow. Just head over to dominiccolenso.com forward slash scorecard to get started.